Hi, folks. Thanks for joining us for this last of our fall equipped sessions uh, about Bible intake. And so we're glad whether you're here in the room with us uh, or joining us online, we're glad that you are here. We will be taking a break after tonight uh, for about six weeks for the holidays, and we'll be back together on Wednesday nights, both in person and online. We are going to do this in the same format, just with a different subject starting in January. Um, and so um, whether you're joining us in here or you're joining us online live, those of you that are watching now on our streaming platforms or later on our podcast, and we keep hearing from people just uh, nearly every week that are downloading the podcast, listening to them on the way to work while they work out and other things. And so glad people are able to do that. So we won't have anything on Wednesdays uh, for the next, uh, I think it's six weeks, but we'll be back the first Wednesday night uh, in January, back together at 630 uh, for um, we're going to do 12 weeks. I'm going to teach on a subject until Easter, and then we'll reevaluate our format then. Uh, I do want to open us in prayer. God, I do thank you for our opportunity to be here uh, one last time together this fall, and thank you that we can gather because uh, we, we are, would not want to take that for granted uh, right now. Uh, we pray, Father, for our time together, that it would be profitable that you would help us as we discuss um, this, uh, this one last subject as it relates to your word. Uh, may this open our eyes to the big picture of uh, your word and the story that you have told us through the scripture and the story that you are still telling uh, as you work, to, uh, work through your church by the power of your spirit and the truth of your word uh, to save people. And um, we look we look expectantly to the end of the story where Christ returns and we live in eternal life with him. So would you bless our time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I am going to uh, conclude this, uh, this sem- I don't know if it's a semester, I don't know how, how I'm going to think about it, uh, but I'm going to conclude th- this subject um, by going back a little bit into uh, last week, uh, really even the last couple of weeks, and, and help paint a big picture for you that I think is going to help you when you go to read and study and hear scripture. Um, and so this is, this is a little bit of a tangential. You may want to think about this almost like it's the appendix to, um, I, I've made reference to, to this idea multiple times of the last several weeks and wasn't sure if I was going to have time to work something like this in, but we have this final week. So because we have the final week, um, this, this is kind of the appendix to the book. And it actually does this. Everything I'm going to talk about today, or just about everything I'm going to talk about today, really comes out of this book. Um, I've, I've made several book recommendations over the last uh, uh, 10 or 12 weeks that we've been in here. So I've got one more for you. This is called God's Big Picture. Um, the, this is a book by Vaughn Roberts, uh, who is uh, British. He's uh, Anglican, uh, but wrote a really succinct and easy to understand, very well organized book uh, on the whole Bible. Really tracing, and, and what I'm going to do really is borrow uh, heavily from uh, Roberts tonight. Um, while he wrote it here in, in what's about 175 or so pages. And I've actually taught this before, this time last year, um, or, or almost this time last year, I was in Rwanda 
uh, with our mission partners there. Uh, and they brought me in to teach um, a full day. I did an entire day seminar on the whole story of the Bible. And I used, I used this same outline there. Now, I, I, I taught all day there, and I'm doing it all in an hour here. So obviously, this is a much more condensed version. So if you got uh, Robert's book here, it would, it would be helpful. It's a really, really good read. You, you're, you're, because of his because of the Christian tradition that he is a part of, there are going to be a couple of things in there that you read and you go, oh, I don't really know that I see it like that. And this is okay. Um, but he does as good a job as, as any that I've ever seen that, that relates it, uh, tells the whole story. There are other books that are out there that attempt to do that, but I, I like the way that he's organized it. So I'm going to use that and would recommend that to you. So God's big picture, you can get it on Amazon. I don't think it's really expensive either. And what I'm going to do is uh, we're going to divide the Bible, this story of redemption, uh, into multiple sections. Uh, and, and here's why I think this serves really as an appendix, a, a helpful note towards what we've been talking about for the last few months. Uh, because you're, you're obviously going to do everything that I told you to do, right? You're going to pick a book of the Bible. Uh, you're going to do some background work on that book of the Bible that tells you uh, who wrote it, when they wrote it, who they wrote it to, uh, what the primary genre of that book is. You're going to do all of the historical search uh, research on it, and then you're going to start slowly, methodically taking a section, a paragraph, a chapter, however that book is best digested, and take that and study it. Maybe a, a section a day, a section every two days, pouring over it, looking for uh, the, the patterns and the questions, all of these things that we've talked about, looking for what does the text say, what does the text mean, where do I find the gospel in this text, what does this text want me to believe or do, making those same notes, moving on to the next week. You're going to do that. Some of you already are. You're actually coming up and talking to me about how it's going. And by the way, I would love to hear how this is going, even beyond just uh, this study. Come to me next month and the next few months and say, hey, I've, I, I picked my first book and this is what I did in this book. And it took me this long to make it through here, but this is what I've learned through it. So I hope you're going to apply some of these things. But if you are, if that is your goal is to say, I'm, I'm going to begin to study scripture in this really systematic, methodical, um, slow approach where I'm, I'm determining meaning and, and really getting to good application beyond just devotional reading of the scriptures. Um, you're going to find yourself asking a question that, that I've told you to ask multiple times before, and that is, where does this fit in the big story? Not just where does this fit, for instance, if you're going to study one of the Gospels, not just where does this story fit in the life of Jesus, so the one that we did from Matthew 8 where Jesus um, uh, you know, we looked at the last two weeks where, where Jesus encounters the Roman centurion who's uh, servant is sick and is asking him to heal him. Um, we, we can deduce from Matthew where that fits into the story of Jesus. And, a, you know, up to that point, we kind of get an idea of what Matthew's talking about. So not only where does it fit in that story, but where does it fit in the story that Matthew is telling us? Because Matthew's talking about the Jewish Messiah. And so why is this important there? So you could do that with nearly any story in the scriptures. You could do that with um, the story we, uh, we looked at this last Sunday in, in Genesis, where uh, God once again reaffirms his promise to 
to Abraham and changes his name and changes Sarah's name and introduces the practice of circumcision as a sign of the covenant. We, we could, you could do the right study and figure out where that fits in the story of Genesis, where it fits in the story of Abraham. Uh, but the, there's still that big question that remains of well, where does this fit? Not in just the book that I'm studying, but if the whole Bible is one big story, where does it fit in that? And that may actually be a little more difficult for you. Um, and I, so I introduced this a couple of weeks ago and said, if I have time to do this, this is how I was going to spend our last week. So that's what I want to do. And I want to just kind of walk through the whole Bible tonight. And really, we're going to walk through looking for three things. Who are the people of God in this phase of the story? Um, where is it happening? And not only where is it happening, but where, does, where do we see God residing in that, in that section of the story? And then how do we see God uh, relating to his people? Most of the time we're going to see this through ruling and blessing. How does God rule his people? How does God bless his people? Um, but, but the big question is how do we see God interacting okay, with his people? So who are the people where do we see God and how do we see God relating to his people? Because if we can answer those questions about the text, about the book that we're reading, the place in, in the story of redemption, we'll see, we'll be able to string all of these things along from Genesis to Revelation and tell this one big overarching story. And I've told you over the last several weeks that the story the Bible is telling is God's plan to redeem his people for his glory. That, that's the story of scripture is that God, for his glory, is redeeming a people. And, and it's a long story. It's a story of millennia. It, it lasts for thousands of years, and God is still telling that story because the, the Bible has a, a part that's not yet finished. So we're still in the story, even though the, the canon of Scripture is closed, we're not going to have any new revelation uh, that would rise to the level of Scripture um, the, the end has not been realized yet. It's not been, right, the now, not yet. It's not been consummated yet. And so um, we, we are, are still in the midst of that. So let's walk through these. I'm going to have to do this relatively quickly, um, but we're going to try to find in each one of these places. All right, so if you've got notes, there's going to be multiple here um, of things that you could write down. The, the best thing to do is if you're writing this down on a piece of paper is think about it like a chart, right? So each, each, each column is going to have a heading, and then we're going to answer those three things in order. Who are the people, where's the place, and how does God relate, all right? So the first column that we want to look at is the pattern of the kingdom. Now, this is actually where I got the title um, for, our, for our series in Genesis 1 and 2 at the beginning of Origins. So we're calling all of Genesis Origins, but that first is called The Pattern. And I borrowed that directly here from Vaughn Roberts uh, because uh, I thought it was a really good way of stating what God was showing there in Genesis 1 and 2 is that he is, he is giving a pattern. And in this, in this really, this, this section is only these first two chapters of Genesis. Now, this may have lasted for a very, very long time because Genesis doesn't tell us how long Genesis 1 and 2 go on for. So could have been a very long time. Adam and Eve could have been in right even after creation. I'm not just talking about the length of creation. But in Genesis 
2, where we see Adam and Eve dwelling in the garden, right? This could go on for a very long time. We're not, we're not told how long, but in the story of Scripture, it, it only lasts a couple of pages. And God is, is acting here as the king who creates. Adam and Eve are the pinnacle of that creation. And God and humans are in right relationship with one another. Really, everything is in right relationship. There's vertically, there is a right relationship between Adam and Eve and God. Horizontally, there's a right relationship both between Adam and Eve and between humans and the creation in which God has set them. So God's people here really are easy to define. It's Adam and Eve. That's it. They are the people of God in this first phase of the story that God is telling. And there is a very defined space, particularly once we move out of uh, Genesis 1 and into Genesis 2, uh, we see that space is the garden, that God creates a place for Adam and Eve to live. It was a, it was a perfect place uh, where they could be in right relationship with God and with right relationship with one another and their uh, surroundings. And God interacts with Adam and Eve directly through his word. Now, when we think about the word of God so often, we, I mean, as we've talked about for the last three months, we think about the Bible. The Bible is the word of God. But imagine with me for a moment the, the life of Adam and Eve pre-fall is a life that they were in perfect relationship with God and yet they didn't have the Bible. How were they able to do that? How were they able to live and know what they were supposed to do? Well, God had directly spoken it to them. They heard the voice of God. And that word of God was just as clear as the Bible that we have today. And, and the, the instruction was simple, right? Work the ground, eat anything you want except for that one over there. That's what they were told to do. And so they were able to live in that place with God, which is important as we move through the story. What we're going to see is, is that something's going to happen that's going to put a barrier between that. But here they're living in perfect relationship with God because they are perfectly keeping the word of God, which is how God is relating to them. That's the pattern. Then we see the perished kingdom. So this is the second. This would be your second column. We have the pattern of the kingdom and then the, we have the perished kingdom. All of these are kingdoms. He, what, what, what Vaughn Roberts does in here is he, he, shows, he shows this story and you don't, don't, think, don't think too um, narrow here with the, the language of kingdom, but he, he, he uses that language of these, these kingdoms to show how God is ruling as king in each one of them, okay? That's, so that's why we're using these, these words kingdom, and then it becomes even more important when we get to, to Jesus and we actually see the, the kingdom of God, right? We have the perished kingdom. This is th that part of Genesis that leads us up to where we are on Sunday mornings now, up to Abraham, and from Adam and Eve's fall in the garden in Genesis 3 up until the time that he makes a promise to God that he will be his, that, that God will bless him and make him into a, a great nation, there are no people of God. 
after humans are tempted by Satan and rebel against God, directly attacking God's word, because that was how God related to them, directly through his word, and now they've rebelled against that. They sought their own authority. They, they exercised their independence from God, and the consequences of that is that everything now is broken. The relationship between man and woman is broken. Adam and Eve's relationship is broken, and we see that play out numerous times over the next six chapters. Cain kills Abel, right? Uh, Noah's son sins against him. I mean, just over and over, we see this broken relationship play out during this part of the story. Um, humans and the relationship between humans and creation uh, is is broken. I mean, think about if there's if. If there's anything that the story of Noah and the flood points to us is is creation itself, right? At the direction of God, obviously God sends it, but it is creation itself that uh, fights against uh, humanity. And even in the curse of Adam, we're told that the relationship there changes. But the most important relationship that changes is that between God and man. No longer is that relationship one where God has clearly spoken and man has fully obeyed. And so death and sin and death enter. And what we've talked about so often in Genesis, in our series in Genesis, a cycle is introduced in scripture that really remains, it it becomes altered later in scripture, but it really remains for much of the story. And that is this cycle of sin and judgment and grace. Where man sins, God pronounces judgment, but then he, instead of uh, applying the full wrath of God to uh, that sin, he relents and offers grace. And we see this time and again. We saw it with Cain and Abel. We saw it with Noah. We saw it with Adam and Eve, right? We just over and over see uh, this, uh, this cycle. But during this period, which again is is a very long period of time. The Bible doesn't put, uh, the Bible gives us ages of people during this time, but it's not intended to be taken as an exhaustive list. So this is a very long time in human history that there are no people of God. And this is during Noah, right? Noah finds favor with God, but Noah is not the people of God. Seth, there's this line where Seth is worshiping God, but, but there's no direct connection. There, there's, no, um, th- there's not the kind of promise that we see that God is going to establish, that God had established with Adam, that God is later going to establish with Abraham and others later. And just as there's no people, there's really no place where God interacted with man and woman in The garden in Genesis 2, there's really no place. It's not that God does not speak, but there's not a place that people couldn't go and say, here is our connection with God. And God is ruling really in what's defining, what defines this period of time is disobedience and curse. And yet we still see that pattern over and again. But when we when we deal with Genesis 3 through Genesis 11, this is the lens. If you're reading stories in that, and you've obviously heard a good number of sermons through that, the lens that we read it through is this lens of God was doing this one thing and in, in, at the beginning setting this pattern, and he's not yet doing it again. Now we're, we're in the life of Abraham, and we see God reestablishing 
this reestablishing his covenant with people. But during that time of antiquity, there, there was really no place for God. There was only broken relationship, disobedience and curse, ultimately leading to the flood, repopulation, right? The Tower of Babel, which ended up being that final story. So that's where the perished kingdom ends with the Tower of Babel and man once again exalting himself and God driving him away. And if you'll remember that sermon from back uh, in September, that was when uh, the, 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 the pattern of sin, judgment, grace really stopped because there was only sin and judgment. There was no grace in Babel. And ultimately what the way that I preached that was, and, and he writes about it like this in this book, that, that the rest of scripture is telling that story. The rest, of, the rest of what God does, starting with Abraham and through, the, through Israel and then ultimately through Jesus, is reversing the curse of, of Babel. But this is the darkest period in, in, in all of these that we'll see because there, there's really no opportunity. There, there's no command for people to follow. There's, there's, there's not really a good opportunity for them uh, to be right with God. Third is the promised kingdom. And this is where we see God begin to operate in earnest amongst his people. His people began with one person, Abraham. And God's promise is partially fulfilled to him. God blesses Abraham, monetarily blesses Abraham. God um, blesses Abraham, as we're going to see, um, uh, coming up uh, with, with a son, right? With, with Isaac, because we just saw this last week, a, a promise and even a name attached to it and a, and a time frame within the next year, God says uh, to, uh, to Abraham that he would, he would birth a son, his son Isaac. And, and so Abraham, Abraham gets part of this promise fulfilled and, and Isaac and Jacob and uh, who would become Israel and then his sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, right? That, that they, they are partially fulfilled. And this, this goes all the way through, um, through all of Genesis and even into Exodus where the people of God are held in captivity and ultimately rescued, delivered, and, and moving into a new place. So the people here in that section from really from Genesis, the end of Genesis 11 uh, through the story of, of the Exodus, uh, the, the people are Abraham and his descendants. It starts really small. Right now you could say it's just this one, it's Abraham, but eventually it's going to be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, his brothers, um, and then over a 400-year period that those 12 tribes are going to increase exponentially to the point where maybe there's a million or more that are ultimately delivered out of Egypt. We begin to see, again, a place established. Now, that place is not, again, just like the promise is not fully realized during the lifetime of the patriarchs, um, the, the place is not fully realized during their lifetime either, uh, but that place bears significant importance later. And so during the life of Abraham, it's the place known as Canaan, right? But this is the promised land. This is, this is Genesis 12, go to a land that I will show you, right? Leave your homeland and go to a place that I will show you. 
And he goes to that place and there are other people living in that place. And Abram doesn't possess it. I think one of the interesting things we'll see when we get uh, this coming Sunday in the, in the text that we deal with uh, the first part of chapter 18. Uh, Abram's, Abraham's been living in Canaan now for like 30 years, but he's still living in a tent. When, when we, when we, you'll see that Sunday morning. Still living in a tent. He, he, he's even been living in this, he's been living in the area known as Hebron, the, the Oaks of Marm. It's this, it's this place south of what would be uh, um, Jerusalem in the, in the Judean wilderness. And he, but he's still, he's still a, twin, a tent dweller, meaning this place hasn't, they haven't fully realized. But the beginning pictures of it, just as we're seeing the beginning uh, promise to, to Abraham be fulfilled in, in the birth of a son, that place, just being there, is, is the beginning of it. And really the way that God relates to his people in the first part of this is that God does what he says he is going to do, right? That God, God tells Abraham, go to a place that I'm going to show you. And Abraham does it, and God shows him. Right? Abraham says, you're going to be the father of a great nation. And or God says, you're going to be the father of a great nation. And Abraham says, well, well, how? I don't have any descendants. And even tries to shortcut it, right, with Ishmael. But God says, no, I'm, I'm, you're going to have a child through Sarah, even though you're 99 and she's 89, right? And so we, we see that this direct relationship begins with God speaking through speaking to Abraham, and later in Genesis Isaac, and later in Genesis Jacob, um, and keeping His word that what God says He's going to do for them, He does, and that's so important in Genesis. When you're reading through this section, Genesis, and even into Exodus, um, when you're reading through this section, the thing that should always stand out in your mind is that God keeps His word. Because there's no written word yet. There's no, there's no written, right? The law hasn't come. That's going to be in the next section. Um, and, and so there, there's no direct way for man to know, okay, this is how I relate to God. So what, what they had, what the patriarchs and their descendants had was, God said this and he did it. And that's how they related. And then when God puts, uh, when God says, you're, like we saw this last week, be circumcised, they, they responded in obedience. So you see God keeping his promises and you see God, or you see the people like Abraham um, obeying God. But it's really this direct relationship between the spoken word of God and the fulfillment of that where God is blessing Abram, Abraham and his descendants. Once the people of God are delivered out of uh, bondage in Egypt and through the end of Exodus and into, um, uh, into Joshua, they are now on this, they are now on a conquest, right? To conquer uh, the promised land and to, and to see that to see that fulfillment, right? It was partially fulfilled in Abraham that God showed him where the place was, but it's not, it's not fully realized. Well, how is, it, how is it fully realized, right? It's fully realized when, when they take part of it. And this is, this is what uh, Roberts writes is, is the, the partial kingdom. 
And you say, wait, they do establish a real kingdom, right? Like Israel becomes this real kingdom with ultimately with laws and real kings. Yes, but it's only a partial fulfillment of what God ultimately has in mind. But it is a, it is a glimpse of not just of Jesus. It's a glimpse of a future that we've not even yet experienced. So what happens once the, once uh, Joshua leads the people in the promised land and they conquer that. And we, we move through, I'm just moving through the Bible now, right? We move through Joshua, we move through judges. Uh, we ultimately get to first Samuel where what happens? The people establish a King, right? And, and the people of God now are not, they've become so many. It's not just Abraham's descendants. They're now a, a, a unified people. They're a nation. They're Israel, And God's place is that place that it was partially fulfilled with Abraham in that it's it's Canaan, which is now Israel. It's the promised land, but it's even more defined than that. Because during the Exodus, again, these, these lines aren't, right? There's a hard and fast line in Genesis 3, correct? There, some of these blur a little bit. And so there's, there's not a hard and fast line here, but we begin to see it in Exodus. We see more of it in Joshua. We see more of it in Judges. We see more of it in 1 Samuel. Um, but God's place isn't just this land. But what ends up happening during that time is that God gives instructions for a building. At first, it's a tent, right? It's the tabernacle. It was, it was a mobile building. And they were given very clear instructions. And the people were intended to see that as the presence of God. That's how the people were supposed to see the tabernacle. And those things that were in the tabernacle really narrowed down even further into the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was the presence of God. It went before the people as they marched into battle. It it dwelt in the Holy of Holies, which was the most holy place. So you have the holy place in the tabernacle and the temple. And if you think the holy place in the temple is the most holy place, it's not. There's an even more holy place in the, in the, at the end of it where that's, where that's where the ark was, right? And this is so the, the, the presence of God becomes consecrated down into not only the promised land, but into this tabernacle and then ultimately into the temple. So you have Israel as the people. This nation is the people. The place is the promised land, most fully realized in in the tabernacle and ultimately in the building of the temple. And then the way that God relates to them is is through two ways. One, God has spoken his word to Moses, given his word to Moses, which has become the law. And the law is what, the law we need to think back to Genesis, um, to the Garden of Eden, where God has given specific instructions that if you're going to be in right relationship with me, Adam and Eve, you're going to do that by following my instructions. Well, that's what God does here. God gives instructions. So if you're going to be in right relationship with me um, as, a, as a people, as a nation, this is, how, this is how you're supposed to do it. So those things are recorded primarily for us in places like Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Um, and they were then enforced by the priests. But ultimately, when we get to 1 Samuel, we have now a king. And the king was intended to rule under the authority of God. That, that that was what the king was supposed to do. And the first king did a terrible job of it. Saul just botched that royally. 
And then God, while Saul is still king, anoints another king, David. David becomes king and God makes a covenant with David that is an expansion of the covenant of Abraham. It is now, it is now added a royal seal to it, that there would be a king who would rule over God's people forever. And he would come in the line of David, right? So God makes a promise to David, just like he made to Abraham. The promise of Abraham is, is people. The promise to David is rule. And that's what the king was supposed to do. The king was supposed to rule under the authority of God. Most of them did a terrible job. They, they, even the, what led to them having a king and having Saul anointed as a king was that the people demanded it. And they demanded it the wrong re- for the wrong reasons. The people looked out and saw that the other nations had a king and they're like, we want one of those. We want to be like them. And God grants that to them and the, the first one that he grants it to uh, fails. And then David, even though David was not perfect and, and in, in some ways failed, um, was, was the, the receiver of a promise of God and the people of God are united under David and then his son Solomon until sin ultimately divides this kingdom. But it is through the law represented in the priesthood and the, the king sitting on the throne that God directly relates to his people during this time. Now you could back that up. You could see that in some ways, like the partial fulfillment of that and the judges right? And, and, then, and then ultimately in the priesthood and, and in the royal line of David. Now again, another, another kingdom presents itself here in the midst of all of this. Um, and really in the midst of all of this, a, a, that cycle of sin, judgment, and grace uh, is expanded. That cycle becomes the cycle of sin, judgment, repentance, and grace. You see, we never really saw, we didn't see much repentance early in Genesis in that cycle, but you do see repentance uh, in, in th- this part when we really get into um, the story of Judges, First and Second Samuel, the Kings, the Chronicles. You, you see the people uh, sin, most often through false gods, and you see God judge them, you see the people repent, and you see God restore them through grace. And so that, that same cycle that we've already seen expands a little bit. And, and a blurred line again occurs, and we get that next kingdom, which is the prophesied kingdom, where we see God's prophets speaking to his people. The prophets are intended to be seen as covenant enforcers. They were the ones who reminded the people of who they were in God. They were the ones who reminded the people of how God had told them to live. They were the ones who called sin, sin. They were the ones who spoke about a remnant, a a smaller group of faithful people who would remain. They were the ones that spoke of the inclusion of the nations, that this exclusive group of people in this tiny little backwoods area of the Middle East would one day expand greatly. God's judgment is on great display during the time of the prophets. As the prophets in various times, and you have to, if you're ever going to read through the prophets, one of the things you have to do is ask, okay, when is this happening? Because the when is so important to the prophets. 
What, who's king in Israel? Is there a king in Israel? Is Israel even exist? Right? Those are important questions to ask with the, with the prophets. And they're, they're, as they enforce that covenant, and then God's grace, though, is so often promised through the prophets. So the people during that, the, this prophesied period, particularly it later, in, um, later in the timeline, is not just this broad nation anymore, but it's this narrowed down remnant. Sometimes this is um, viewed in, as the remnant returns, right? There's multiple return stories, one in Ezra, one in Nehemiah. There's prophets that, there's minor prophets particularly that come alongside of that. There's even a remnant that remains, there's remnant stories um, not in return, but in exile. So Daniel is a prime example of a remnant story where the people of God in, in Daniel is this really small group of faithful people, right? It's Daniel, it's Shadrach, Meshach, it's Abednego. There's now a new temple that's, that's being built, but there's also prophets talking about something even greater and better than that. There's, there's, there's now a look towards the future, towards God doing something that he has not done before. God's relationship with his people during this time is in telling them in what they should believe in faith. So, so often in the prophets, we should, we should not read for the future for us, but we should read for the future of the people who he was writing to and asking this question, what were the prophets telling them to believe? Um, I was writing today our scripts for our four Sundays of Advent. We'll ask families in our church, people in our church, and we started this a couple of years ago, uh, to light our Advent wreath and to, to read. And three of those four weeks, it just happened this way this year, three of those four weeks are from Isaiah. And all, each one of those passages are about things, well, two of those three passages are about things that have already happened. And they, they were things that the prophets were saying the people needed to have faith that God would do. So the prophets begin to have this future in mind. And that's how God is relating. He's relating through his, this, he's relating to his remnant through this future promise. Next, the present kingdom. Now we're in the New Testament. And in the present kingdom, Jesus is the center. This is, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Jesus is the one who establishes this kingdom, but he is in the story, the people of God. Now that doesn't mean that there is no one else that is right with God, but when we read with, with this framework in mind, when we read the story of scripture during the life and ministry of Jesus, we need to think about the people of God as being singular that there is one person doing what he is supposed to do. Now, there are other people that occasionally do what they're supposed to do. There are other people that are learning and growing in Jesus. But there's one guy that's doing it right every single time. And he is the fulfillment of everything that's come before him. He is the true and better Adam. He is, he is the, the one who is living in perfect relationship with God. 
He is the one representing all of us before God, where Adam represents us all in sin and death. Jesus represents us all in obedience and life. Jesus is the true and better Israel who is keeping the law of God perfectly. He is the true and better tabernacle and temple, that dwelling place of God. He is the true and better king. He's the true and better David and Solomon. Even though he's not sitting on a throne, he is the ruler of the universe here, living amongst people. And so we should see Jesus himself as that people, that really representing everyone right there in that one person. The same is true about God's place. He is the place. Where is God in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Don? <laughs> he is in bodily form. He is a person, Jesus Christ. How does God relate? He relates through Jesus. We have the direct words of God. When we hear the voice of Christ, we hear the words of God. I think I've said this before. If not, I think it bears repeating. When the apostles, for instance, in the New Testament wrote, inspired by the Holy Spirit, became the words of God. When the prophets of old spoke or wrote, or David, king, writes psalms. When these people, but not, when they, when they did that inspired by the Holy Spirit, it was the word of God. But every word out of Paul's mouth was not the word of God. Every word out of David's mouth was not the word of God. Every word out of Moses' mouth was not the word of God. It was only in those special moments, led by the Holy Spirit, recorded in scripture for us. But every word Jesus spoke was the word of God every word. There was never a moment that he ceased to be God. There was never a moment, there was never a word, there was never an utterance that was outside of the right thing to say. It was always the word of God. And Jesus was bringing in something new. Jesus was ushering in a new covenant, just as God had made a covenant with Adam, and just as God had made a covenant with uh, Abraham, and just as God has made a covenant with um, David, which changed the way that God was relating with his people. Now God is making a new covenant through Jesus, through his life and through his death. And both of those things are important. And so when you're reading through, and I keep trying to relate this back to Bible intake, right? When you're reading through one of the gospels, it's not just the death of Jesus that makes a new covenant. It's the life of Jesus that makes, if the, the life of Jesus is what makes it possible for the death of Jesus to bring about a new covenant. The obedience of Jesus to perfectly keep the word of God is what makes the new covenant possible. So for him to be our eternal sacrifice, he had to be a perfect sacrifice. For him to be our eternal high priest, he had to be a perfect high priest, right? For him to be our per eternal king, he had to be a perfect king. And so this is what Jesus establishes. This is the covenant that Jesus establishes with us. And so he is both the people, the place, and the relationship, all in bodily form there in the present kingdom. And the four gospels just teach us this from a different angle. Matthew shows us this from Jesus as the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. Matthew quotes the Old Testament. Matthew is very Jewish in his understanding of 
the Messiah and, and intentionally communicates it that way. Mark shows Jesus in his suffering. There's no one that shows as much suffering to us in the four gospel accounts as, as Mark, that Jesus was the one who suffered and suffered in our place, but also calls his people to suffer. Luke, writing to a Gentile, shows that Jesus is not just the savior of one group of people, but he's the savior of the world. John takes a doctrinal view and shows us that Jesus is the son of God who provides eternal life to us. So Jesus becomes the focus now. And then after his death and death and resurrection, he ascends to heaven and we get to what is known as the proclaimed kingdom. These are the, the very last days before Jesus' ascension, leading all the way up until his return. This is where we are now. We are in the period of the proclaimed kingdom of God. During the last days, it is the Holy Spirit who works through God. The, the people, let me start there. The, the people are new Israel. It is Jew and Gentile, all believers in Christ. It is the word we would use is the church, the assembly, the universal church, the people of God for all time. The, all of those who have come to him in faith, there is no, there is no ritual, there is no um, way to be born into it. There's nothing, there's no amount of money you can do or anything you, any amount of money you can give or anything you can do. It is simply about being born again into this new kingdom. God's place then is where? Within his church. Just as Jesus was the place of God during his ministry, now we are the place of God, his church. And, and I, I want you to, to see this uh, because we live in a very Western, obviously, American culture, very individualistic. And uh, it, there was no doubt when I asked the question, where does God live? You've spent much time around church at all. Your answer was within me, right? That is, very, that is a very American answer. Where does Jesus live? He's living within me. Where's God present? Oh, he's present within me, right? His Holy Spirit lives within me. And all of that is true. But we emphasize that so much as individualistic Westerners, what do we miss? We miss the body. We miss that there is actually more of an indwelled presence of God when we are together than when we are apart. It, it, it's why when we got back together in May, when we started meeting again, it was very important that we do so. I know this is going out live. It's why if I have anything to do with it, we will never have an empty worship center again on a Sunday morning. I mean, we'll figure out how to gather because gathering matters. It matters because we are the people of God and there's something about gathering. There's something about being together. The New Testament never gives this idea at all that Christians are individuals. Even though you are an individual Christian, Christianity is a corporate activity. We together become God's people. So yes, you are indwelt with him, but it is the church in its truest sense where God resides. 
And then it is through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is now at work in our lives, bringing truth of his word into our minds and into our hearts. He is the one who equips us for the work of ministry. He is the one who gifts us for the mission of God. He is the one who produces holiness in our lives. He is the one who makes you and me into the temple of God and makes us when we gather into the temple of God. It is the Holy Spirit who helps us to endure persecution, to suffer as Jesus did, to endure hardship and and sorrow for Christ's sake. This is the proclaimed kingdom. And and there's really two aspects to it. There's, There's the now and the not yet. There's what Jesus introduced during his ministry and there's still yet that to be fulfilled. God's people, we right now live in the kingdom of God, just as the New Testament church lived in the kingdom of God. Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand and it was at hand. He introduced it. He brought it to us. He inaugurated it. He started it. But God's people will more fully live in the kingdom of God later. There's still yet something to become. This is not the end. This isn't This isn't all there is. There is still more to come. But this is the kingdom. And we are the people and this is the place. And the Holy Spirit through the word of God is working in us. And we look towards the last kingdom, the perfected kingdom. It is in the perfected kingdom that the multinational family of God are his people for all eternity. This kingdom will be perfected when Christ returns. And when Christ returns, he will judge the living and the dead, and he will establish a new heaven and a new earth. And all of God's people for all time, Revelation tells us from every tribe, language, nation, and tongue, will be his people for all time. The place will be new creation. We get varying glimpses of this. We don't fully know, right? But I do know we have, we have somewhat of a wrong understanding of eternity within the American church. If you ask the average American Christian, where are you going to spend eternity? The, question, the answer is heaven. You know that's not what the Bible says though, right? The Bible says we're going to spend eternity with Jesus in the new earth. That this story is not linear fully. It goes back to the beginning. We go back to perfect creation. We go back to right relationship with God. We, 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 we return to a time when God's creation is at peace. Man and woman in right relationship with one another. In right relationship with their creation. And in right relationship with their God. And God dwells among us. God will dwell eternally in the midst of his people. And God will rule. This is the relationship that God himself, through Jesus on the throne, will rule eternally over his perfect creation with no lasting effects of sin and death. All of this will be but a memory as God brings about his final, the final consummation of his kingdom, which takes us into 
an eternity with him, Jesus on the throne, perfect. And we live in perfect relationship and perfect blessing with him. Now, I recognize that's a lot, right? But, but here's what I hope you see. I hope you see that you don't read any word of scripture divorced from that story. Because when we start taking stories of scripture, not just out of the context of the book that they're in or the chapter that they're in, which is, which is such a temptation to us when we read, try to study scripture. It's a temptation to preachers, right? We're, we're all tempted to do something like that. Twist it and make it mean what we want it to mean. And when we do that, we, we abuse the text often to the point where we completely miss what the text actually meant. But we also do that when we take those things out of not just where they are in that text, but when we take them out of the big story that God is telling. Because if, if, if we find scripture and we say, well, I don't see how this fits within the big story that God is telling, so then it can mean whatever I want it to mean. We know that's not right. The, the hard work for us to do is, to, is when we find that, we say, I don't know how this fits. Then we think of this. We think, okay, this is the big story. Perfect creation on one end, perfect creation on the other end. A lot of messed up stuff in the middle. But Jesus brings about something that makes this right. We say, okay, where does this, where does this then fit? Oh, this, this is happening in the time that Jesus has given the law to his people. And so this is why he's doing it. Our God has given the law to his people. This is why he's doing it. Oh, this is during the time of the prophets and the exile. And, and so this is why he's doing it. Oh, this is the time of the apostles. And so this is why that's there. This big story, keeping this big story in our mind will help us to rightly read and study and even hear through sermons the word of God. And that's, this is what helps us be a, uh, what Ephesians 4 describes as a mature church. Ephesians 4 describes um, a, a church, the, the goal of the church, right? The, the, the responsibility of, of those called by God to pastor the church is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And then he goes on further to, to describe further um, about building everyone up. Uh, into mature manhood is what he says. But then he describes something beforehand, and that is that if we're not doing that, what happens in the, in the church is that we'll be, we'll be um, he uses an ocean metaphor, you know, right? the waves of, of false doctrine will, will just toss us to and fro. We'll just be out there on a little lifeboat, taking us whichever way, whatever wave of doctrine comes through. I and mean, listen, that's not new. Paul thought it was a problem in the first century, so he wrote about it. It's still a problem in the 21st century, and it will still be a problem until Jesus comes back, regardless of when that is. False teaching is a problem in Revelation, okay, which means false teaching is going to remain. It's, it, it's always been. But in contrast with false teaching is a church who knows how to read the Bible, who knows when what they're hearing is wrong who knows how to rightly apply the word of God because they know how to do it. So that's why this is important because we need to be able to do that well. So if this guy ever shoots his mouth off wrong on a Sunday morning, I'm not going to lead you astray because you're going to say, wait a second. 
That's not what this is about. You hear, you know, somebody hands you a book, somebody sends you a podcast, somebody, you know, you flip through the TV and you see a preacher. We run the risk of being taken in by false doctrine. And not that all podcasts or TV preachers or books are wrong. Some of them are great. Some of them aren't. So the, the better practice we have at reading and studying and hearing the Bible the easier we're going to be able to defend against that and the more mature we're going to grow as a people. That's been the whole point of the last three months of us being in here together. I've enjoyed this um, when we talked. It was an easy decision for us, both with, uh, both with COVID and the fact that we still have people uh, on Wednesday nights that are, that are not able to come into a group uh, yet, which we completely understand, and the fact that people work. I mean, Wednesday nights can be difficult for people to get here um, with traffic in our community and responsibilities that people have. And so the fact that we're able to podcast this and do this live, we're going to continue to do in January, February, March. I've got three minutes. I'm just going to give you a really quick heads up. I don't have a name for it yet. I think I do, but I'm not going to tell you because I may change it. But I'm going to talk about, I'm going to talk about the gospel and culture uh, next next time for 12 weeks. And, and here's, here, here's the big question I'm seeking to answer. Why haven't you preached about this? I get that question all the time. Why haven't you preached about abortion? Why haven't you preached about homosexuality? Why haven't you preached about, well, I, I don't preach about those subjects until I get to them in the scripture. And when I get to them, I preach on them, right? But maybe you haven't been here long enough for me to get to one of those scriptures. And when I do, I'll, I'll, I'll preach on it. We're going to get to homosexuality, at least in tangentially, within uh, in just a couple of weeks in Sodom and Gomorrah. All right. But there's something to be said about a church that knows how to view what's happening in our world through a gospel lens. And so that's where I'm going to start. I'm going to start with how do you develop a gospel lens, meaning a biblical worldview. So I think it's a natural progression out of this. We've talked about how to read and study the Bible. Now we're going to talk about how to look at our world through this lens. And so I'm going to start there. How do we develop that, right? Asking some, some questions about the gospel. And, and then um, ultimately, we're just going to likely take, as I have it written out right now, we're going to just take one or two subjects a day in the latter half of that. And I'm just going to say, this is clearly what the Bible says about them. And this is how Christians are supposed to approach these subjects. I've got a lot of good books I'm going to recommend um, next semester. So I've started putting that together. So that'll start the first Wednesday night uh, in January. We'll take off the next six weeks uh, for the holiday. So let me pray for us and we'll conclude. God, thank you again. Uh, for not just today, but for these weeks that we've had to talk about your word. Thank you for the opportunity to be online, to be on podcasts, to be live, and for people to be able to join us during this difficult time. Uh, Father, we do pray uh, for our um, world right now. We recognize that this is uh, one of the more uh, difficult times in modern history uh, with, uh, with this current pandemic, and it is, it's paralyzed us. Uh, it, it's made life far more difficult uh, than, than we're used to for, for everyone. 
Um, and, and for some, it is certainly life-threatening, and, and we recognize that. And we're grateful that we can be in living rooms and in computers and on telephones and people's radios, wherever they are, podcasting or watching this. But also I'm grateful for the gathered church in the room uh, with me right now, and I long for the day that everyone feels like they can gather again and we can be ready whenever that is. Um, bring that day quickly, Lord Jesus. Um, but thank you that we can study your word together. Thank you that it matures us, it builds us up, that we, we become something that we were not, so uh, we will not be so easily led astray. I pray, God, that through these last several um, months, we will have helped one another become better students of your word, because it is through your word that we live in relationship and obedience to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.